Thank you for downloading this podcast from Digital Mindfulness. This is episode number 15. Hello and welcome to the Digital Mindfulness Podcast, where each week we speak with experts who are at the cutting edge of exploring what it means to be human in the digital age and how digitized society impacts our organizations and our lives. My guest this week is Patrick Meehan. He's the Vice President of Research for Gartner in the US. Patrick and his team at Gartner have spearheaded a new stream of research and a new framework for digital businesses to think about how their staff and customers interact with technology. This new framework called digital humanism is already proving to be popular amongst business executives from large and small companies alike. And in this wide ranging interview, I'm sure you'll be as fascinated as I was by the concept. Really, it seems as though digital businesses won't get their competitive advantage from more technology and automation in the near future. It will be from humans. Before we get going, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about our online conference taking place on the 3rd and 4th of March 2016. The conference brings together experts from a whole host of fields from technology, psychology, philosophy and others to share wisdom and actionable skills on ways that we can enhance our personal and professional lives in the digital age. Be sure to register now for $100 off the general admission price. So now, let's talk digital humanism with Patrick Meehan. Well, hello there, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I can't wait to get talking about this, about digital humanism. But I was wondering if you can tell me and the audience a little bit more about yourself. How did you come to develop an interest in technology and society more generally? Um, Well, thank you very much, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to uh, talk to you and be able to have a chance to talk about this topic. Um, I came to uh, be interested in technology in business, government, society, education, uh, kind of in a roundabout way. My undergraduate degree is actually in architecture and theory of design. And I actually worked in the art business at Christie's Auction House for about six years and learned a lot about the art business, but also learned more about business and marketing and communications and kind of found myself at the early days of personal computing and things like desktop publishing and said, gee, there's something really here. And, uh, decided to go to graduate school at NYU, uh, New York University, and pursued human-computer interface design, which seemed like a logical extension of my interest in architecture, design, art, decorative objects, things like that. And I've always had this angle on technology. I think that's firmly rooted in my architecture, right, in my classical training in history of art, history of architecture, history of design. And I've always looked at computing as being something that should be intuitive, that should make our lives better, that should solve a concrete problem, uh, and that shouldn't make our lives a nuisance. And that's really been the thread, I say, that's run through all of my work uh, as uh, a chief technology officer, that's run through my work over the years as a researcher at Gartner, and kind of brings us today in this world um, where we're rapidly running out of, I think, tolerance in society for digital marketing and being made a market of one, and the big inflection point of digital business that starts to put the power back in the hands of the consumer, the student, the patient, whomever, 
um, actually represents a very interesting kind of full circle to why I got in this business, which is how does technology make people better, not how engineers make technology better, which has kind of been our focus for the past 20 years. Is we've got to make technology better and better, improve, improve, and innovate. That's great. But if it's now the whole market's about applied technology, what's it doing for me, not what is it doing to me? That's, that's what really I find personally very interesting. I also think that's where business, the economy, and developed markets are headed in terms of what they want and need out of technology. I absolutely love that. I love the idea of that whole phrase of just what does technology do for me rather than what does it do to me? To me, yeah. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you could just share with us what is digital humanism and why is it important? Yeah, digital humanism is something that, um, you know, I'm a, a vice president and research director at Gartner currently, which is uh, not a consulting firm, contrary to what a lot of people think. We are actually the world's largest research firm in technology research, I should say. Um, so we certainly look at what vendors are doing and markets and, you know, what's SAP doing, good or bad, and supply chain and things like that. But we also have, in my research area, we look at more things, the soft sides, the soft skills that technology uh, and business leaders need to have to be useful and successful um, around, and especially how they use technology. So a lot of this issue of you know, what does my workplace look like as it becomes more digital? What do my channels look like as they become more digital and interfacing with my customers in both a B2B or a B2C scenario? And so this started to become much more of an issue. Uh, and I think this, this really became much more of an issue um, when we saw over the past five or seven years the consumerization of IT, where it was, well, if I can do this at home, why can't I do it at work? And that meant policies. It also meant the interfaces. It meant the ease of downloading software, the ease of finding information. Well, if it's so easy to find it on Wikipedia, why can't I find it in our business intelligence system? So this whole notion of, you know, what was technology doing to me in the workplace as opposed to helping me be more effective in my job started to become a research area that we started to look at. Fast forward now to about a year ago, and we introduced this topic at our symposia, our global symposia last fall, thinking, not really sure whether this was going to have an uptake in our, in our client base, and it's probably been one of the biggest topics we've ever introduced. It's, it's something that when I say this to a room full of executives, whether they're technology leaders or business leaders, when I say just the words digital humanism, their eyes light up like, Finally, somebody's talking about the overload. Finally, somebody's talking about how can this make our business better? How can this make our clients happier? How can this make our workers you know, more effective and therefore more content that they're you know, being successful in their roles? That's, that's part of what it means. It also means that we're reaching, I think a lot of our customers are reaching the end of the rope. I mean, I use our customers as the generic, you know, consumers. The consumers are reaching the end of their rope in terms of having things pushed at them, right? If I go, you know, I like cars, right? I'm not in the market to buy every car I look at, but I'd like to play with the Porsche configurator every once in a while and dream. You'd think I was going to buy a Porsche in the next five minutes, the, number, the amount of crap that is pushed at me every time I open a web browser. It drives me nuts, right? That's, digital humanism is a reaction to things like that, right? To having stuff pushed at me, that they think through, through big data and analytics that they know more about me than they actually really do. They don't know me at all. That's digital humanism. And that's the tipping point that we're starting to reach where consumers are just starting to tune out and glaze over, right? They really don't care what you want to push at me. And they don't really care what you tell me about you as an enterprise. I want to know what everybody like me thinks of you as an enterprise. And then I'll decide whether to transact with you or not. Right? That's, those, are, those, are, you know, those are all parts of digital humanist principles. Other things are like, you know, if you think about just interfacing with technology in our daily lives. 
right? We've got now the option of having a screen on our wrist, a screen in our pocket, a screen in our hand, a screen on our desk, a screen in our car, a screen in our living room with an IP address called a flat screen, right? A screen on a refrigerator, if you've bought an LG refrigerator in the past two years. I mean, there's screens everywhere. Why does my washing machine actually need an IP address? I don't know. How do you design for that? How do I, do I care that all this stuff is going on? Do I want my Nest thermostat to learn about my behaviors and when it wants to set the temperatures on my air conditioning here in South Florida, when it wants to set it, when it thinks it's optimized? No, I'm perfectly capable of setting my own thermostat. Thank you. It's technology overload. It's technology for technology's sake that when it becomes a burden on us, whether it's marketing, whether it's how we make personal decisions, whether it's how we communicate with people, how we interface socially, how we run our homes, how we make decisions at work. When too much is too much, that's when digital humanism kicks in. Does that make sense, Lawrence? It does, it does. That's, that's fascinating. And I think it's absolutely true. I was speaking to someone very recently and they were saying that the idea that technology should be creative for the sake of creating technology is absolutely absurd. It is absurd. Actually, yeah. technology does serve a purpose. It should be fulfilling um, deep human needs and, and serving that. But at the moment, it's more like, like you said, it's, everything's been commoditized. It's been, you know, technology is just being created for the sake of creating it. Well, it's like I always say, you know, you should think more like an architect and less like a consulting engineer. And for the past 25 years, the engineers have been driving the vendors. They've been driving the technology space. The big exception to that is Apple. Right? Apple's, Apple is really probably one of the great architecture design firms of all time, digital architecture. Right? And, and, and why is Microsoft struggling? Well, first of all, they missed all the sociological inflection points. They missed mobility. They missed social. They told Google to go away. Why is Microsoft struggling? Because it's a technology company. It's an engineering company. Why is Apple worth 2x ExxonMobil? Because it's a design firm. It's a lifestyle company. Why is Tesla so successful as a car company? Not because it's, it's, they are great cars. They're cool. But they've reinvented what it means to be a car company. They don't do mechanical callbacks, recalls. They do software upgrades through the cloud. They don't sell through dealers. They sell through galleries or petting zoos, and you configure your car on your smartphone, and it's delivered like Amazon to your door. It's completely different. You know, it, it's a lifestyle company that happens to be in the car business right now. It, those, these are, I see instances, those would be examples of digital humanist companies, Lawrence and how their behaviors are different from traditional companies. So the, so the opposite in your writing to, um, to being a digital um, humanist is being a digital machinist and having that mindset of being a machinist. And I was wondering if you think, if you've seen that a lot of the problems that we as people have and companies have with techno you know, information overload and tech overload and automation do you think a lot of the problems are unspoken? Do you think we just accept technology as it is and the impact it's having on our lives? I think we have to this point. I think that, you know, the, the, but the impacts on society haven't been so great as they have been. Um, I think the big turning point was... Uh, President Obama's first election was really the first social network election. So I think here in the United States, that was a big wake-up call that you could actually be, you know, someone who was on her way to coronation, Hillary Clinton, by breaking the model. And technology broke the model, but it was people's use of technology that broke the financial model, okay? And it was as follows. Hillary Clinton went to 100 big donors for $10 million each to fuel her campaign. Obama went to several million people for $10 to fuel his campaign. And when he need, ran out of money, but he was winning, he could go back to those same million people and they'd give him $20 and he won. Right? The social network, it was the buzz. It was, you know, he was the first social media president. 
And so I think that was the first awakening about seven years ago. Other um, campaigns have tried to emulate that and failed miserably. Mitt Romney failed miserably at it because he thought he had the demographics, the big data, and the social network to get the vote out, but it didn't work. It didn't happen. Um, so it's not the technology. It's how people use it. That's digital humanism. That's people waking up to it. When you start to see things like America being called a post-racial society, but the last 14 months in this country have been nothing but webcam videos or, or cell phone videos of young black men being shot by white police officers, guess what? We're not in a post-racial society, right? And so technology is waking people up in a good way. I don't know if it's all dark side stuff. I think it's actually a lot of things, Lawrence, I see happening in a good way that are waking people up to the good side of technology and what technology can do to them for them. I think that that's, that's, that's the positive side. Digital humanism is not meant to have a negative connotation. I think it's more of an awakening than it is uh, of like we're shedding something. I, I think we're, we're just maturing in how we look at the technology and how we understand how we can use it in education, in politics, in society, for societal issues, you know, how we can use it in healthcare, right? That, that technology, would I give up a little privacy in medical records if I knew that I could get a better diagnosis, that I could get a more accurate diagnosis, that I could get treated more effectively and faster, and the efficacy of that treatment could be monitored over time? Sure. But that's a, that's a decision I would make, because right now, HIPAA rules in the United States around privacy of medical records are rather draconian, and I think they're actually hurting people, just the way I think privacy laws in the EU will hurt. So, you know, why will they hurt? Because if you talk about the Internet of Things negotiating on my behalf, EU privacy law basically policy-wise, says that can't happen, right? And so I would have to opt into that. Well, how do I opt into that if I'm in a car crash and I'm unconscious and I can't opt into it, but my wearable computing is trying to send a signal to the emergency services to come get me to the hospital because my heart's palpitating. You know, so these are the, the big issues that we're seeing arise around technology in this inflection point that we're in. They actually are not technology problems. They're policy they're ethical, they're procedural, they're legal, right? They're governmental. They're not, they're not technology problems. So we're seeing kind of just a, you know, an evolution into what I call the sort of social science of IT. It's, it's not about the technology at all, but most of the technology, we have a lot of what we need. It's now how we're using it. That's the big issue. And that's where digital humanism kicks in. I think it's a side of set of guiding principles to making sure that technology doesn't, you know, that we keep technology out of bringing us into the dark side and actually shows us ways of positive use of technology in society. I like that. It's like, I like that because digital humanism, then it becomes almost a state of mind. I mean, everything you were talking about before, like, you know, these are governmental, these are policy problems, governmental problems, um, these, all, these are all human problems. Exactly. All of them human. And perhaps in the rush that we've, that we've been in to create the underlying, the framework for our digitized societies like the internet, like the web, like our social networks, etc. Um, perhaps now we're really starting to kind of take a step back and think, and think more clearly, like you say, more in a, in a um, kind of anthropological or um, um, social science mindset. That's kind of the way we're thinking at the moment. Well, exactly right. I mean, I, I look at it, and a large part of my research inside of digital humanism, um, you know, we introduce digital humanism as a concept, but, but remember the business Gartner is in. We have to create news you can use. We can't just create news for news sake. Right. And so the next step to this is, well, how do you make digital humanism practical? Well, I say it's a set of guide, you know, it's a set of design principles. It's a set of guiding principles to designing really compelling interactions with your employees, with your students, with your patients, with your customers, with your 
partners, your suppliers, whomever, right? It's a guiding set of guiding principles. It's, it's almost like an architectural manifesto, like futurism or cubism or something like that. You know, it's like, this is, these are our design principles. Um, and, and I tell my clients that you need to behave more like architects and less like the consulting engineers or the builders, right? Everybody remembers Norman Foster. Everybody knows he created this glorious canopy over the, the British Museum. Could you name any of his consulting engineers? Could you even name the construction company that built it? No. I rest my case, right? So if, you be, if, if the argument is behave more like architects, what are architects? Architects are great social scientists because they understand, right? They understand semiotic theory and design, right? What message am I sending with this building? What design program am I creating? What, how are people going to feel when they enter that building? Right? What problems are they going to solve in that building? There's a big difference between creating a university versus creating a hospital, for example, right? versus a bus terminal. All of them have great uses, but it's appropriateness of fit. Right? It's also what are we willing to accept? That's cultural anthropology. Right? What, what behaviors are we willing to engage in? That's sociology. How are we willing to group ourselves? Right? These are all issues, actually, that architects have to face when they're creating great buildings and great space. You could apply everything I just said to the courtyard of the British Museum. Right? You could apply everything as if I were talking, giving an architectural criticism of the, the courtyard of the British Museum. Everything about that, you could be said. Why not apply that to technology? Why not apply that to human-computer interface design, hardware design, software design? non-scene design, when things negotiate with things on my behalf in the background. You know, how do you design for that? How do you, there are a lot of questions. I'm not saying I have all the answers, Lawrence, or that digital humanism provides all the answers. What I'm saying is if you look at it from the social science perspective, you know, you've got cultural anthropology, you have sociology, you have cognitive psychology for the interface design part, and you've got behavioral economics or social economics. What behaviors, what new behaviors will we see emerge? And therefore, what will be the new business models, the new interaction models with enterprises? That's what I think is exciting about digital humanism. It provides when you start to make it practical and you look at the four disciplines, the four major disciplines of the social sciences, you can start to use them as guiding principles and design principles for reinventing how your enterprise, whatever its mission is, interfaces with humans. That's digital humanism. You mentioned when you introduced the idea at the symposium that it was received really, really warmly by your colleagues. And I'm wondering if you believe that once, once, this, um, once this idea gets out more widely, do you think that people will still be um, receptive to it? Or do you think that people will actually be afraid you know, that they think, you know, oh my God, I've got to become more human. I've got to learn empathy. And Well, I, I, think, I think that's an interesting point. When, when, when it was introduced at our global symposia last fall, um, it wasn't just well received by, by my colleagues who might, that might be akin to academic saying, great academic research. It, more importantly, it was very well received by our client base. Right? And these are technologists. These are technology vendors. These are business leaders. These are CEOs of FTSE 50 companies, Fortune 500 companies. Right? These are really big, serious players. Right? And, and so I think that's more interesting, the message, that it was actually taken up by the marketplace than by you know, the sort of research community. Uh, and that, that they saw value in it because they saw an opportunity to kind of retool their brands, where their brands had maybe become a little too technology heavy, a little bit too onerous on the workplace or on the channel strategies or the marketing strategies, that they saw a way of thinking differently and getting their people to think differently. Also, think about the, think about the disciplines I mentioned. It drives multidisciplinary and cross-functional thinking, and that's the future of the enterprise. You have to break silos. Right? And that's what really great leaders do. Right? They create a story of who we're going to be. And the story is compelling enough that the workforce wants to follow them. Right? That's, that's basic, basic leadership 101. Right? 
And so if we are telling a really fresh story, we're, we're not here just to make money at a hospital. We're actually here to make people's lives better, not even to fix them, but to keep them well. That's a whole new mission, and technology can play a major role in that. That's very uplifting. That would be a digital humanist message from a leader, for example. So that's just, it's kind of flipping the message, flipping the brand, flipping the reason we come to work every day. That's what I think, that's what I think attributed to, you know, the, the significant uptake in our client base. It's a, it's, a, it's a whole new way of looking at technology and society. You know, it's a whole new way of looking at, I'll just keep going back to, I think enterprises really are beginning to figure out that they're doing things to people and that consumers are getting really tired of it. And they really want to have, they don't want to have a transaction. They want, they want to settle on enterprises where and they can build a relationship. You know, I can transact with Ford to buy a car, but I have a relationship with Tesla. My Tesla is part of my lifestyle, right? That's different. You know, it's, it's why people keep buying Apple devices. Because they're beautiful. They're beautiful to hold. They're intuitive. I immediately know how to use it when I pick it up. It's unintimidating, right? And it's, it's more than a brand. It's a cult. It's a cult following. You know, it's, 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 it's a brand to the nth degree. That's why Apple's such a valuable company. So... Uh, you know, I, that's why I say Steve Jobs was really kind of the Frank Lloyd Wright of the digital era. He thought completely differently, well, just like Frank Lloyd Wright did. He was the first American, real American architect who broke with the European tradition and really created the prairie style, created something that was uniquely American, that really thought differently and reflected American culture and society. Well, Steve was a product of the valley. He was a product of California in the 1970s, the whole go-go, just the way Frank Lloyd Wright was a product of Chicago in the 1910s, right? The city that invented the skyscraper. Think differently. You know, it all ties back. You know, history does repeat itself when it comes to design and when it comes to great innovation. And that's where I think we're in a very exciting moment right now. It's interesting because, you know, in the pre-interview, you were saying, you used the words that, as a society, we're starting to mature now mm -hmm. with our technology. Mm -hmm. So we're actually, you know, we're, we're kind of pulling back from creating as much stuff as we can to thinking actually, right, what do we need this to do? What effect is this having on, on us and, you know, and our, and our descendants, you know, and our colleagues and etc. cetera. It's, I like that word you use, the, you know, that we're maturing with our well, I think we are maturing. We're, we're maturing in our approach to technology, Lawrence. We're, we're maturing in that we're, we're less... Um, we used to be awed by technology for technology's sake, right? I mean, do you remember the first time you picked up an iPhone and realized that it had, you know, it, it basically had gravitational awareness? I actually do. And yeah. no other device had ever done that before. Well, okay, that was whiz-bang, um, but that's actually incredibly useful when you're thinking about how you want to interact with information, because sometimes you want to scroll through text really, or numbers, alphanumeric, very, very quickly, right? And you would hold it in the vertical. But sometimes you want to look at a picture or a video, and you want to hold it in the horizontal. Well, you have two devices in one now that you didn't have before. You know, so, you know, we find, but was that the intent when that happened, when he created that? I don't know. Or was that a happy accident and we only realized that we could have different kinds of interfaces to different media types as we needed them, depending on what we were trying, what task we were trying to perform. You know, it, that's what I mean by maturing. We're maturing, you know, we're, you're going to see a whole new wave in the next year of virtual reality, right? I, virtual reality has been around since the 1990s, right? And it's, it's certainly because of processing power, the imaging, you know, the quality of the images, the quality of the visuals and things like that can be a greater, greater quality. Uh, and you don't get dizzy because, you know, the image refresh is like a 20th of a millisecond. 
and, and things like that. So you don't get, you know, vertigo and things like you did in the 1990s. But I don't know, is virtual reality, I mean, are we all going to stick things on our heads and stop looking at other people and start looking at virtual people? I don't think so. Is it useful in certain areas where you're trying to spot patterns? Virtual reality has been used on Wall Street for 30 years to spot patterns in, in, in stock trades or fraud or things like that, basically visually. So, you know, it's just another way to represent information. Is it great for the entertainment industry? Well, all this stuff starts in the entertainment industry, right? What was the biggest thing that fueled the growth of bandwidth and, and use of video technologies in the web? The porn industry. Is that going to happen again in virtual reality? Probably not because it's all fake. It's not real humans. But is it going to fuel the gaming industry? You bet. It's going to bring a whole new dimension. Okay, that's nice. Those are nice niche markets. Those are nice niche players. I don't see myself driving down the street wearing a heads-up display. You know, I, you know, I want to look at the real trees. I want to look at the real... Now, will holography be completely interesting? Augmented reality? Yeah, but that's different from virtual reality. So... Will, you know, will virtual reality lead to augmented reality? Probably. That would represent a maturing, right? Where I can augment my workplace with information that I could see on a pair of eyeglasses in front of me and manipulate in different ways. I mean, it's sta it sounds sort of, you know, you know Star Trek-ish or something like that, but you know, you can actually do that today. They do it in the military industrial complex, which is unfortunately where most of these innovations come from. Right? So does that represent a maturing? Yeah. Because now I'm adding value to physical time and place as opposed to trying to reinvent it, which I think is, is, is somewhat of a dead end. I think it's an entertainment application, but I don't think you'll see, you know, huge... To me, that's the antithesis of digital humanism when you're actually trying to create fake humans and fake environments. It's interesting. I, I think that lots of people listening to this, when once this idea of digital humanism enters the workplace, I think they're going to feel much safer because this is the complete antithesis to the um, machines that are going to take over the world. Oh, yeah. Narrative. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, kind of pervades the media. Yeah, I mean, that, that all makes for good, you know, that sells magazines, it sells covers of Time magazine and things like that. And, um, but, I mean, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, our position is that um, just like any other technology revolution, you know, whether it was robotics in Detroit, <clears throat> did that eliminate was there a pain for a while yeah because the robots were replacing rote repetitive uh jobs that were very low value jobs but very high wage they were not sustainable as a business model that's why the quality of american cars suffered so miserably in the 1970s and why the japanese became so strong in the 70s because they were engineering things better they were using robotics and they weren't wasting people on repetitive things like bolting on bumpers and fenders. They let the machines do that and let humans do what they're really good at. And that's the thinking part of an assembly line, right? Driving the waste out, driving the inefficiency out, driving the quality higher. That was the whole Toyota way, right? That's why they became such a powerful car company when America was struggling with this debate over, ooh, robots taking away union jobs, ooh, horrible, bad robots. No, it was actually really good for the workers because most of those workers were bored out of their minds and suffering from repetitive um, stress injuries, right? And it freed up the people to actually, in the whole part, that whole part of Michigan after they got over that, to move up to a higher level of order which was actually using their brains, which paid better, which meant the whole standard of living in the whole region went up higher, right? It moved from a manufacturing kind of mentality to a, an applied manufacturing or a high-tech manufacturing kind of a mentality. That's where I see all of industry going. Repetitive task work is not something humans should be doing. 
you know, high-level engineering manufacturing are the jobs that are going unfilled, if you talk to companies like Siemens, for example. So I see all this as opportunity, not threat. In one of your papers, um, you talked about this idea of human-centric digital leadership. Um, and I just wanted to kind of touch on that in terms of if you could t- like tell us what that actually is and also how it's different from the forms of leadership that have preceded it. Yeah. Human, you know, we, we so much of our leadership was really based on what technology can you procure, which ways can you combine it, and how can you drive some sort of new value proposition out of that. So it was more about um, specify, procure, and build, and then run, right? And it really took people out of the equation and put technology at the center of the design activity. If you think about it, it is illogical as sitting down with your first meeting with an architect and saying, now, what should the tensile strength of that steel be, and what's the dampness of the concrete going to be, and, you know, what's the wind um, load going to be on the windows? I I don't know. We haven't made the design yet. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So when you, if you think about the way applied technology has been handled over the past 25 years, it's, it's that kind of bass-ackwards way of saying we're going to put the technology first and we're going to then, you know, make the humans adapt to the technology. Who was the biggest defender of that? SAP, right? We used to call it the German bunker, right? It was, we have the best processes for every vertical industry. You should buy us because we have packaged processes. Oh, by the way, these are none of your processes, so you're going to install this, and then all your humans, all your workers are going to have to change to the SAP way. Right? That, was, that was the ERP systems, um, which became a lot of the workplace applications of the late 90s. Right? And it was, that's why change management became such a huge issue. You're going to put the technology in, and then you're going to force people to have to rethink the way they work. How logical is that? That's like, I'm going to build a building and put the door on the second floor, and you're going to have to rethink about what it means to enter a building. That's about as logical, right? Those would be corollary logics right there. And so what I'm saying is that, or what we're saying at Gartner is that, no, you should be thinking about what what, what makes one worker in the sales force that much more successful than the other? What are their behaviors? How can we capture their behaviors and maybe create some sort of an information system or a collaborative decision-making environment or some kind of an environment that makes that person a nucleus of innovation in terms of behavior as a salesperson that can then positively influence their colleagues and the rest of the sales force? Right? That would be a digital humanist approach to something we call workplace anthropology. Right? That would be a humanist, you know, a human-centered kind of leadership, that the technology doesn't lead, but the humans are the ones who come up with the behavioral innovation, and the leader needs to spot the anomalous high performers, make them a rock star, and help them to influence their colleagues. Well, if you're not sitting in the same cubicles... How do you do that? You use technology, right? If you want to influence your entire sales force to this star behavior or this appropriate behavior for that product or that channel, then you leverage that across technology and you make everybody more successful. It's, it's kind of creating like a social network inside of your sales organization, perhaps, right? That would be human-centered leadership as opposed to this, you, you need to make 10 calls per day, you need to log them in this uh, uh, you know, system, uh, you need to build a pipeline, you need to tell me whether you're at point A, B, or C towards close. And, you know, that's overly processizing and engineering human behavior. And guess what? That results in really poor performing sales departments. So, you know, businesses are not glomming onto this because they think it's the cool new thing or because it makes them more soft and squishy. They're glomming onto this because they know it's actually the right way to make more money and make more people more effective. So, you know, there is an economic benefit to all of what we're talking about here, Lawrence. It's not all motherhood and apple pie and Chevrolet, which is probably a very Americanism. But, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a typical American thing. Um, 
you know, there, there is actually a way to monetize this. Remember what I said, this does have to be news you can use to our client base anyway. And the news you can use is actually when people are more effective in their roles and you can leverage that effectiveness towards other people who are fair to middling and they can glom onto that and be led by their peers and learn from their peers, then they're more effective. Then they're happier. They're more content. Your retention rates go up. Therefore, your turnover costs and your training costs go down. And clients like to interface with people they know. They like to buy from the same salesperson they like over a course of 10 years, not get a new one every six months. Right? So it's now, it goes back to what I said before, the future of the economy is not in transactions, it's in relationships. And companies that understand that are benefiting from that. Those are all digital humanist principles. Anyway, that's just the tip of the iceberg. This is really funny because it sounds completely logical and very simple, and it makes me wonder why everyone isn't doing this already. Well, change is hard. I, I'll tell you what it all comes down to. It's not change management. We actually say change management is an oxymoron. You know, forcing, managing people, forcing them to change is not something you can do anymore. And by the way, I don't mean to bash SAP. SAP learned that very well. Their, you know, APIs are open now. They've bought portal vendors. They've bought BI vendors. You know, you can, uh, you know, you can attach any other kinds of enterprise applications to it. So it's, it's not the German bunker it was in the late 90s. I should clarify that. Um, and full disclosure, I am not the SAP analyst at Gartner. I am not the word on SAP. These are just observations I'm making for the points of these discussions. I am not the official analytical word on SAP. We have people for that if anyone's interested. Um, so the, the, the real issue here is culture. Um, and that is the other biggest thing that um, I'm researching with my colleagues Lee McMullen and Bard Papagai in, in Brisbane, Australia, uh, Andy Rosal Jones in Melbourne. We're looking at culture as being um, the biggest determiner of success in business transformation. Because remember, we're in an inflection point, right? We're moving from digital marketing into a world of the internet of things and sensors, the industrial internet, the smartphone is my gateway to the digital universe, et cetera, et cetera. That's putting more hands in the power of the consumer. That, needs, that means marketing departments need to change their way of thinking from less I'm going to push stuff at you to more, I need to sense you and react to the opportunities that you alert me to where I could possibly transact or further our relationship. That's a very different way of thinking about marketing. That's a cultural transformation, right? That's why companies aren't doing this. It's how do you change your culture? Every CEO wants to change his or her culture. Every CEO will tell you, Michael Porter famously said it, right? Culture eats strategy for lunch every day. You can have all the strategy in the world you want. You can have all the digital business strategy in the world. But if you don't have the appropriate culture, right, you're never going to innovate. You know, if you, had, if you had Jack Welsh culture at GE, you probably, they probably not, would not have come up with the industrial Internet. Or maybe they would have. I don't know. But the culture of that, you, whenever you're in an inflection point, you, you, you get into paradoxical moments. I must be operationally excellent and build the great best locomotives and, you know, jet engines and uh, turbines and CAT scan machines that I can, but I have to innovate. But one says I have to plan my work, work my plan, fire the bottom 10% performers every year and become a black belt Six Sigma. That's not exactly an culture and an environment that's conducive to innovation. That's a culture that's conducive to making really great jet engines, right? And so the flip side to that is how do you innovate? Well, Jeff Immelt at GE said, I, you know, we need to do something different. And, you know, he went on with the operational excellence thing, then they were going to be the green company, then they went a little too deep into finance, got burned in 2008 by that. Well, the industrial internet, the internet of things, oh, I make jet engines, but I'm also now in the information business based on the self-diagnosis of jet engines. Well, what does that do? That puts GE in the information business. It puts them in the airplane uptime business. It puts them in the airplane safety business, right? If you think about it. 
That's a very high margin business. Oh, they still make jet engines, but now they have a very, very lucrative information business. They built that with 2,000 developers out on the West Coast. They could not do that in headquarters in Connecticut. Right? So they knew literally they had to create a new culture 3,000 miles away in California. So every company does it differently, Lawrence. There's no one answer to that. But I will tell you that technology can have the biggest impact on culture in the workplace. How do I collaborate? How do I make decisions? How do I get visibility, transparency? How do I, how do I anticipate my customers' needs rather than react to them? Right? These are all possible through technology. And this, is, this, this creates very, very different kinds of culture or the opportunity to create very different kinds of culture, cultures of accountability, cultures of transparency, right? cultures of collaboration, cultures of innovation. It's appropriateness of fit. None of those kinds of cultures I just mentioned is one is better than the other. It's appropriateness of fit of what your market is, what you're trying to accomplish, and you know, what, what, where is your culture today? You know, everybody wants to be a startup today. That's not the right culture for everybody because you know why? 90% of startups fail. So everybody wants to be a startup. We say, no, you don't. That's a bad metaphor. (laughs) It's a bad cultural (laughs) metaphor. It implies ping pong tables, free lunch, unlimited maternity leave, and 90% failure rate. (laughs) (laughs) So what would you say then, Patrick, is in this coming humanist economy, um, what do you think is going to be the most important human quality to have in the workplace? Yeah, you've said it already, um, and I'm only going to say it because I know it, it suited me very well in business, and that's empathy. Um, if you can't see yourself in someone else's predicament, if you can't feel their pain, if you can't, you know, the old cliche, walk in their shoes, if you can't feel what they're feeling, I, I, I don't know how to put my finger on it more literally than that because to me it's just innate, Right. I, I can talk to people. I can get inside of people's heads. I can, you know, that's part of what I do as a researcher, right? I start to try to see why people are thinking differently or why something is starting to change. And then people trust you and they start to tell you their stories of what their experiences have been. That's all based on empathy. I think it's the number one trait. And so, you know, whether authenticity and empathy go hand in hand, I think they do. And that's, that's the way I see the future. And hopefully, we'll, we'll cultivate more and more leaders with those traits, with authenticity, with empathy. So it's not be confused with coddling. That's not what I mean here. I mean understanding, a deeper level of understanding. That's what le- our leaders really need. Well, unfortunately, that's, I mean, we've come to the end of the interview. And, um, you know, thank you so much for sharing um, with us, sharing your insight and your wisdom. Patrick, where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, Well, I am a vice president and research director at Gartner, uh, which is headquartered in Stanford, Connecticut. We also have uh, major offices in um, Egham in the UK, uh, in Tokyo, in Sydney, Australia, and San Jose, California, as pretty much presences in every other in every city around the world. Uh, I they can find me on Gartner.com. They can find me uh, on the web uh, with different profiles. Just Google me. Uh, got a quite a quite a varied background, as I pointed out, starting in the art business and ending up as a researcher at Gartner and everything in between. Also, uh, Gartner conferences. I speak uh, all over the world at different times of the year. Um, I write. I write articles. I write for the Wall Street Journal occasionally. Uh, so I'm pretty much everywhere out there in the ether, Lawrence. Uh, but also like the face-to-face time. So if you're ever at a Gartner conference or uh, if you're interested, uh, you can drop me an email at patrick.mean at gartner.com. Well, I'll put links to everything that you've spoken about, including your contact details Terrific. and writing in the show notes. And um, Patrick, Mian, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Lawrence. Um, 
great topic. Thank you so much for contacting me and uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation because this is just the opening uh, salvo and I think what we're going to see is a big transformation in how people look at technology over time. So there you go. Technological development is becoming more humanistic in its outlook and this is something that we can all be pleased about. Don't forget to check out our online conference which will be taking place on the 3rd and 4th of March 2016. You can see all of this at digitalmindfulness.net. Until next week, stay safe.